All right. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join us every other week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Ursa Acri, co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kayla, who I will let introduce herself. Hey, guys. Kayla here from Journey Dog Training, remote online and in Missoula, Montana. All right. Well, uh, today's episode is part two of our behavioral euthanasia discussion. So we decided that this was a weighty enough topic that we needed to give it two episodes to really, and really we could probably do like half a dozen episodes on it, but um, we definitely wanted to split it up a little bit so it didn't become too long and so that we could give um, each topic the attention that we felt it deserved. So if you haven't listened to part one, you should definitely go back and listen to part one first because we sort of, um, you know, discuss like what behavioral euthanasia is, what our backgrounds are, our experience with the practice. Um, we talk about factors to consider about when behavioral euthanasia might be justified. So it really sets you up to, um, you know, fully be engaged with part two, which today we're going to discuss some of the differences between considering behavioral euthanasia in a shelter environment versus with a pet who has a home already who's placed. Um, we're also going to talk about discussing behavioral euthanasia with clients. It's a, a sensitive topic. Um, you know, there's not a consensus. Of course, there's not a consensus among trainers about um you know, how to approach it, if you should approach it, et cetera. So um, go back and listen to part one if you haven't already. It'll really help you, you know, sort of prepare for uh, what we're going to talk about today. So um, we left off last time. We had just wrapped up sort of our short list of factors that we always consider when we're thinking about, you know, is behavioral euthanasia justified? And so what I want to start off with, and Kayla, you can maybe lead us into this discussion, is how do those factors weigh differently if we're talking about a dog in a shelter that does not have a home versus a dog, an owned dog who has been placed in a home or who, or who has been living in a home. And, I, and we could also maybe even include um, dogs in foster, even though... Um, you know, they're not, and, and they're sort of in limbo between those two categories. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, how do these things, how do those factors look different? Yeah. So I think I almost find it easier to start out thinking about what it's like in a home and then thinking about how it may be different in a shelter. So let's kind of assume that anything that we're looking at here is a is a relatively severe case. We're not talking about dogs that are in a shelter that are potentially being euthanized just for like jumping up on people. You know, we're, we're let's assume that we're talking about a shelter that is well equipped to deal with behavior issues. So we're kind of comparing apples to apples as far as severity of cases, more or less. Um, because I know, yeah, and I know that's not the case worldwide or nationwide or even countywide in many places. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, it's kind of like we're considering a dog who meets a lot of those criteria that we talked about at the end of our last episode, you know, where yeah. we're saying like, okay, we've weighed all of these factors. Um, and it, you know, it is something that should be considered. So yeah, that's yeah. a good point to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, sorry, shaking dog. Uh, <laughs> there's no getting away from it here. Um, nope. 
yeah, I think, you know, we just want to make, make that perfectly clear that we are kind of assuming when we're talking about these shelter dogs that we're looking at shelter dogs where even in a home, it would be reasonable to be having a discussion about our options, you know, um, versus again, I know that there are some shelters that are just so, um, understaffed, underfunded, overworked, and that is not their fault, but they're making much more challenging decisions about dogs that would, you know, could reasonably be homed relatively easily. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've started with all those caveats. (laughs) Um, So in a home, when the dog already has its, its family, it has its person, and we're thinking about behavioral euthanasia, the owner's in most cases are going to have a, be- a much better idea of what that ongoing management and risk looks like. So there's a little bit more of an informed decision for those owners versus asking someone who has not met the dog or seen the dog to start thinking about that level of risk management and, um, you know, behavioral management. Um, so again, in theory, um, most of the time when the, the dog is already in a home, we've got that consideration um in place um and then the other thing is with when the dog already has a family there is already some amount of a human animal bond there um it might be under stress it might be fractured in some ways but it gives the owners a chance to change their lifestyle um and know what they're willing to work with as far as the fact that they already know this dog relatively well um and they're working through that versus, again, it's really different if someone has not yet chosen to adopt that dog to start trying to think about how to convince um, or how to how to have them change their lives. Or if it's ethical to ask someone who doesn't even own the dog yet to be changing their lives to work around the dog. Or so do you have anything to add as far as kind of those two points? Yeah, I think, um, you know, with a dog that's already in a home, it's it's extremely likely well, uh, inevitable that they've already dealt with this issue for a while and probably have been taking steps to mitigate it and manage it. Um, you know, typically uh, none of the clients that I, I think I've ever worked with that have gotten to the point of even talking about euthanasia for behavior have just done nothing and then just decided, um, you know, maybe we're at that point. So I agree, like generally we're talking about clients or owners who have who are already familiar with what at least some of what's needed to mitigate the issue um, and kind of what they're getting into. So they're not going in blind. Um, You know, often they have been trying things that may or may not have worked. um, And the reason we get them as, as behavior consultants is because they need help uh, improving that process or making it more reliable or making it more efficient or, you know, ultimately working on hopefully changing the behavior. So yeah, they, there's definitely a factor of, they know what they're getting into better than someone who walks into a shelter going, I really want a companion and then potentially could be saddled with this huge undertaking that involves, you know, heavy management and, and BMOD and that sort of thing. So yeah. Um, you know, of course, if you already are dealing with it, uh, it's, it's not a shock that you're going to continue dealing with it. So yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think that the, the bond, you know, the note that you made about the bond already existing is really important. Um, because, you know, it, you think about like a caring for a sick family member, for example, and, you know, people who take that on generally do so out of, you 
you know, combined senses of love and obligation. Um, you know, this person is a family member and it's my obligation to take care of them. And I want to take care of them because I love them. And that's, that can't be understated, you know, you're not going to walk in. Most people aren't going to walk in off the street and take on that burden for someone that they don't already have a connection to. Um, so I think that that plays a huge, huge role in, you know, determining whether or not, um, all of those factors that we discussed are going to be like what the prognosis is, you know, if somebody's already emotionally invested, they're a lot like a lot more likely to be willing to take on those things than someone who does not already have an emotional attachment to the animal. So I think that, um, you know, while it's hard, it's hard to say that because, um, you know, it's, it's a bummer that there are animals in shelters that don't have families to care for them, but it's the reality. Yeah. It's the reality. So, um, yeah, so, yeah and I, think, I think those those are important. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I know I've witnessed on the sheltering side of things, especially compared to when a dog is already in the home, is I feel like I witness a lot more of kind of rose-tinted glasses with people who have not yet adopted the dog. There's a lot of perception of like, oh, it's just because the dog is in the shelter that he's acting this way or love is going to fix it. You know, it's all in how you raise them. There are a lot of these pervasive myths that are out there to help us feel good. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times that's why they stick around so well. Um, And yeah, once you've already lived with the dog and loved the dog and raised the dog, I think you're a little bit less susceptible to those myths and therefore more open to some of these harder truths. Um, right. You know, and whether that's that deciding to go with euthanasia or not, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of beyond the point here. But um, I know I've had a lot when I used to work at the shelter, I had a lot of hard conversations with adopters being like, no, no, this is if you do take this animal home, this is going to be a really big deal. And this is what your life is going to have to look like. And I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily saying that to scare you. I'm saying that so that both you and the animal can be successful um, right. or at least as likely to be successful as possible. Um, right. Well, and I also think that, um, you know, I, um, I started in animal sheltering after I had been a trainer for several years, a trainer and behavior consultant for several years. And I think having that perspective of knowing what behavior issues do to families, you know, knowing the effect that it has on a family when their dog has, you know, just debilitating fear or anxiety or aggression issues um, and, and seeing the other side of that, it's, it really helps you be more pragmatic about whether or not it's fair to saddle someone with that who just comes in wanting, you know, a pet or a companion. And so I think that really helps, you know, when you said rose colored glasses, I was thinking, um, you know, shelter staff, (laughs) because I think, and, and I say that, you know, with affection, I think people who work in sheltering and rescuing are, are extremely compassionate, caring people. But I do think sometimes when you only see the side where you're working in it and you don't see the side where dogs go home and create these extremely stressful situations and problems, it can be really easy to, again, you know, like you said, look at it through rose colored glasses or kind of make excuses or, or, 
um, you know, sort of not be completely honest with ourselves about what, what really is a problem and, and what really is not acceptable to allow somebody to take on. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, the shelter staff, um, are an important component. And I think that kind of ties into one of the next points, which is kind of the responsibility component. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you already have a potentially dangerous dog in your home or, you know, a dog with really serious anxiety issues or whatever, it doesn't have to be a dangerous dog. Um, your responsibilities mostly lie with, you know, yourself, your friends, your family, and your dog. Um, it's a smaller circle and it's already kind of, unfortunately on you for better or for worse. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not saying that the breeder or shelter or rescue mm-hmm. that gave you that dog doesn't have any responsibility, but it is, it's, you know, at least with kind of our cultural perception of it, once that dog is in your home, um, mm-hmm. it is, it is kind of your responsibility. Um, been passed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, in, in some ways makes that calculus easier because you know, the factors out there, you know, your dog, you know, your neighborhood, you know, your friends, you know, your family, you know, whether or not you have a fence, you know, how good your fence is, you know, how responsible your teenage kid is. Um, you know, you, you can actually look at these risk factors and, and come up with something versus, you know, a shelter, their, their primary responsibility is to the community and to animals of the community in general, not necessarily to that specific dog. So they're, their calculus shifts quite a bit um, and shifts them generally towards being more cautious um, or at least the shelters that Ursa and I have more experience with. And that obviously varies quite a bit. Um, And again, that's because that's not because they're bad. It's not because they're evil. It's not because they're not giving dogs a chance. It's because their purpose and, you know, the reason a shelter exists is for the community, both human and animal. And it's not about a specific individual animal the way that like i mean you know with barley my dog like he is my number one concern as far as dog world goes um any other dog that potentially comes into my life is secondary to him and that's not the case with shelters um and that's you know not how it's supposed to be or you know it's they're not supposed to have a favorite dog that you know that dog's success trumps every other animal that ever comes through their doors (laughs) right (laughs) um and then Shelters, when they're thinking about whether or not to euthanize an animal or put it up for adoption, they are dealing with so many more unknowns than you are. You know, they don't, they can't control whether or not, um, you know, you have family over for Christmas. They can counsel you on the fact that that might be a bad idea for your dog for ABC reasons. They can counsel you that this dog needs to have a fenced area. They can do home checks to you know, avoid adopting to a dog to a home that doesn't meet their standards. But once that dog is out their door, um, you know, they have effectively put a stamp of approval on it and then it's, it's out there and they can't actually control anything. So they, you know, kind of by necessity have to be a lot more cautious because once they make the decision to adopt an animal, they can't control anything anymore. Versus if you make the decision to keep a potentially dangerous animal, you are still to you know, a large degree in control of the situation. So it's, there's a lot more, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but the difference feels very it's, clear in my mind. It's sort of the, like the sphere of influence. 
So you yeah. have a lot of control and influence over how you manage your dog and, and what your dog's life looks like and, and the environmental factors and the triggers and that sort of thing. And you can take all of that into consideration when you're making a decision about whether or not a behavior problem is severe enough to euthanize. A shelter can only essentially say, like, here's the best case scenario. Here's the worst case scenario. We hope the best case scenario happens, but we can't control if the worst case scenario happens. And in that event, it could be really bad. You know, they have to sort of understand that, like, this is going to be out of our control once we release this dog out into the world. And it, do we, do we allow that? Do we let go of that sort of control and influence and just allow hopefully the best case, maybe the worst case scenario to happen. Um, yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. It can definitely be a little hard to articulate, but I think you've, I think you've explained it in a way that makes sense. Um, you know, shelters essentially have to decide, are we going to pass this along or not? Um, and once they pass it along, they don't have any control about the outcome or very little in most cases, very little control. Um, yeah, and I yeah. think both of us are supportive of relatively open adoption procedures in general. Um, you know, there there are places that put a lot more requirements on adopters, but um, and and I I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but it it's a it's a different model. And you and I definitely have more experience with open adoption models, where you know you might have you might counsel adopters, you might have suggestions that the dog doesn't go home with kids of a certain age or without a fence or or you know needs to go to an active home. Um, and you might reject some adopters, but in general, um, the shelters that Ursa and I have experience with, that's that's about as far as they go. Um, and I know I've had experience with shelters that do much more like, we're going to do a home check. We're going to require that the dog go see this trainer once a week for the next several months. Um, you know, there th- that exists, but that's not a model that Ars and I are quite as familiar with in general. Well, um, and you know that model of adoption of heavy screening and placing heavy requirements kind of ties into another factor on our list, which is: is it going to be possible to find the appropriate home? So if you have an animal with these behavior considerations or behavior issues, and on top of saying, hey, you're going to have to deal with this, you also have to jump through these six hoops. You know, you have to agree that you're going to see this trainer. You have to agree that you're going to do da-da-da. You have to agree that you're going to put in a fence, blah, 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 blah. Every requirement you add is narrowing the pool of potential adopters because Every time you add that requirement, you're going to get, you're going to, you're going to rule people out either because they don't meet it or they're not willing to meet it. And so, um, you know, that's another thing to consider is when you have a dog with, with a lot of requirements due to their behavior issue, you can almost guarantee it's going to be harder to find them a, a, an appropriate home and they're going to sit in the shelter and foster and rescue longer. And it's all, it turns into this vicious cycle because we both know the shelter environment is not ideal for resolving behavior issues. So the longer the dog is there, often the worse the behavior problems get um, with some exceptions, but I would say by and large, you know, it, it just turns into this vicious um, cycle where the dog's issues get worse, which makes him harder to adopt, which means they have to have more requirements, which means he's there longer, which means his issues get worse and so on and so on. Um, 
So, you know, at some point, it's really important for someone to say, like, this cycle is going to continue and, we, and somebody has to be the one to stop it, you know, on, on behalf of the animal, on behalf of potential adopters, on behalf of the community, et cetera, on behalf of just the shelter staff. And that's something that I think is not taken into consideration either is that, you know, the longer dogs sit in a shelter, the more attached shelter staff get. And the harder it is if you do have to eventually come to that decision and, and shelter staff deserve you know, to have their emotions protected as much as possible too, because they're doing a really hard job. So, um, yeah, we just had a really tough case like that at Humane Society of Western Montana, that the dog had been there for months and the behavior team had made amazing progress with her. Um, and, and it just, it just wasn't enough. And the pandemic ended up pushing the bail, um, for them. Uh, and they ended up making the decision to euthanize, but, um, which is tough. Um, and it was really, really tough on the staff. I didn't know the dog super well, but I had worked with her a couple of times. Um, and this is a small shelter that boasts a very, very high live release rate. Um, and yeah, I think kind of, and I know this isn't quite the point, but, um, you know, circling back to this open versus closed adoption thing, I personally have walked away from dogs. Um, before I found Barley, there was a border collie Aussie mixed puppy that I very much so wanted to adopt that I walked away from because they required that I go to puppy kindergarten, um, an hour and a half from where I lived. Um, because, you know, they wanted me to go to their puppy kindergarten. Um, and, um, it, it, yeah, it was a rescue down in Colorado Springs. I lived in Denver. Um, you know how that traffic can be, you know, it just, it, and uh, like, and that's not a terrible thing. That puppy, I'm sure, I, I like, I know he got adopted like the next day by someone. Else, you know, it was it was fine for that puppy. Um, but you know that that could have been a really good match for me. Um, good match for that puppy. Who knows? Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, I know as well. Um, in a lot of more closed or you know selective adoption procedures, when I adopted Barley, there's no way I would have passed screening. You know, I was, uh, I was 23. I lived in an apartment. I worked four 10 hour days a week. Um, you know, uh, there's many, many shelters out there that would have chosen not to adopt a young high energy, you know, working border collie to me as a home. And hopefully those of you guys who listen would agree with me that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it worked out pretty well and he probably uh, couldn't have ended up in a better home than with me. Um, oh, oh my gosh, there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on paper, there are so many rescues that would have just seen, oh my gosh, she rents and she lives in an apartment. And she doesn't have a yard. Nope. No way. No how. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that's, again, that's a slightly different discussion, but I, I do think, you know, thinking about who can take this dog on is really, really important. And then being really honest about where you're going to find those people and then whether or not they want this sort of dog. Um, well, yeah. And I think to your point, if we're talking about, you know, normal dogs with no behavior issues that have these requirements placed on them that are deterring adopters, um, then if we get into dogs with behavior issues with more requirements, you know, training requirements, management requirements, whatever. Um, obviously, you know, like we said, the pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller, um, the more complex the requirements are. And so, you know, again, that means dogs sitting in kennels, which is not good for them and it's not good for the shelter. Um, so yeah, you know, shelters have to weigh, like, are we going to be able to find the right home? And, you know, you and I joke all the time about, 
<laughs> I think we even brought this up in our last up, our part one about, you know, the lesbian couple that lives on an island where they never have any children and there are no other dogs and no men and no whatever. Like, and no squirrels and no right, one ever rings the doorbell. And, yes. Yeah. And, and no food is ever dropped on the floor. And like those homes are few and far between. And to yeah. hold out for that, you know, just sort of feeds into that, um, that cycle of the dogs there longer and the behavior issues get worse. So big, big, big consideration for a shelter when deciding whether or not um, behavioral euthanasia is appropriate that owners do not really have. I mean, I know I have clients who, uh, almost all of my clients with very few exceptions, um, want to try to rehome their dog before they, you know, before they seriously consider behavioral euthanasia. And so, you know, of course there is that consideration of, you know, is the dog, is the, is the perfect home out there is the right home out there. But in those situations, the dog is not sitting in a kennel in the shelter. Um, usually at the very least, the management is being maintained. The behavior isn't getting worse um, when the dog is already in a home. So the, pressure to find that appropriate home is not as high as it is, um, when the animal's already in shelter. So, um, yeah. And I would yeah. say the, the cases I've had with an owned dog who has ended up being rehomed instead of euthanized where, you know, that was a serious discussion that we had had. Um, generally it was something where the trigger was more limited and more known. Um, you know, it wasn't right. a generalized guarding case where if you right. drop, a Kleenex or go to pick up your shoe, you're going to get bitten where From like that's the room. Yeah. 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 Um, I've not had any of those cases be rehomed. I have had some that we worked through, but I haven't had any be rehomed, but I have had cases where, you know, the dog was targeting or being targeted by the other dog in the home consistently. And it, and, but like got along. Okay. You know, wasn't necessarily leash reactive out and out and about. And it's just like, okay, this dog, you know, probably can't, has going to be, have to be crated if your cousin's dog visits, visits at Christmas, but otherwise this dog is fine living alone without another dog. Um, you know, and those are very, very different cases. Um, so, you know, and, and it just, it just varies. Um, and then one of the other things that shelters really have to think about that I think we've already touched on, but I want to pull out explicitly is that shelters have limited capacity. Um, so in, you know, Denver Dumb Friends League, the shelter that uh, Urs and I both used to work for, um, they have hundreds of kennels. Um, but during the pandemic, they had times where um, they were at or very, very near um, capacity anyway. And still, you know, and their mission is to never have to euthanize an animal for the time it's been in the shelter or space that, um, that they have. Um, but just because, you know, and I don't, I don't know the intricacies of them during the pandemic, um, but that's different as well from a, a small local shelter or a foster-based rescue where, you know, the shelter uh, in Missoula that I volunteer for has, gosh, let me think, like four times six, 24, like probably 48, maybe 50 dog kennels total. Um, and yeah, if you had some small dogs or puppies, you could use some of the cat rooms or, you know, they could get creative with space. Um, but at some point, if they had a massive hoarding case, you know, a massive bust that, you know, there, there would get to be a point where, you know, they can pull in other shelters to transfer dogs out. They can get dogs into foster homes. They can get creatives with space. But they're also at some point is just a limit on what 
the staff and volunteers can handle and how much space they have. And if you've got a dog that's going to take six months of two BMOD sessions a day um, that need a volunteer and a staff member to help with because, you know, someone's got to be handling a neutral dog and someone else has to, you know, it's just, it gets to the point where, okay, this dog is taking up a kennel that could have been used to adopt out 15 other dogs in this time because they were going to come in, stay for a week and then leave. And you're just using up endless amounts of staff and volunteer time. And to some degree, that is what the staff and volunteer are there for. We're not saying that no one ever wants to help out some of these marginal dogs. But at some point, it's it, it, the math doesn't make sense. And if you're going to have to turn away other dogs at the door because a kennel is being taken up with this dog, that's a huge bite risk. And then those dogs might end up being euthanized elsewhere. You know, it like... Yeah, it, it, they, that is not a decision that you have to consider in your home. That is generally, I mean, I'm sure there are situations where that could be part of the calculus, but generally in a home, that's not part of the math. Yeah, and I think it comes down to resources, really, which, you know, can be a factor in someone's home. You know, not everyone has unlimited time or unlimited money to devote to resolving a behavior issue, but shelters by and large are extremely limited in their resources. Um, like you said, in terms of space, in terms of, um, people power, in terms of money, in terms of time, you know, like resources are limited. And unfortunately in most shelters, um, it is a zero sum game where if you're using resources on one animal, they're, they're not, they're not going to be available for another. And I think that, um, you know, when we're talking about time, money, effort, and space poured into, like you said, a dog that maybe needs six months of time on, on, um, behavior modification or, or whatever, uh, that could be spent in the meantime, going through healthy population. So going through dogs that have little or no behavior issues or really minor ones, um, you know, if we are really talking about saving the most lives, then it's a calculation that you have to make. It's, a, it's, you have to weigh, um, you know, at what point are we, and you know, <laughs> I don't want to, I hate to put it in terms that feel cold, but at what point are we wasting resources on an animal that may never be able to go into a home versus using those resources on a larger number of animals that could easily find homes. Um, and, you know, while I, obviously I do what I do because I love dogs and I want to make their lives as good as possible, um, you know, again, in sheltering, it's, it's a zero-sum game, so you have to weigh those. You have to be pragmatic about that. Um, and it's, that's not to say that any individual dog's life is worth more than any other. But when you are talking about how do we have to, how can we help the most dogs? A lot of the time that um, means making tough decisions about resources that won't be put to their best use. Yeah. Um, it feels a lot like that, that trolley thought experiment. Yes, in philosophy. Yes. And oh I gosh. think, <laughs> and I think part of where it also, you know, it really is that experiment being lived out time and time again. So for those of you who aren't familiar, it's the question of, so you're looking at a, a train track or a trolley track and there's, um, there's five people who are tied to the tracks and you can pull and there's one person tied to the tracks at a fork and the trolley is headed towards the five. You can pull a lever that would move the trolley over so that it just goes to kill the one instead of the five. And 
that's utilitarianly the the right choice because you're saving, you know, a net of four lives. Um, but it feels terrible because if you take no action, um, you know, five people die, but one person is saved. But if you take the action, that one person's life, their, you know, their blood is on your hands. This is very macabre. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> gone down a dark, a bit, I mean, dark. These, are, these are the ethical questions that you have yeah. to chew on when, when you're talking about something like this, you know, we have, we have an ethical responsibility to think about and evaluate these things in our, and our role in them. And, you know, nobody goes through life doing no harm. You just don't like you, you just don't. And so if your goal is to minimize the harm that you're doing and do the most possible good, these are the questions that you have to wrestle with for sure. Um, you know, so, and there, and, and nothing exists in a vacuum. You don't, you don't just, um, you know, have a dog with risky behavior issues that, that just never affects anything. Like it's, it's gonna, it's gonna have a ripple effect. Um, and so, you know, the, the best you can do to predict what those ripples will be, um, you know, obviously that's something that you have to kind of wrestle with. And so, yeah, it feels really dark to talk about it does. that, um, but it's yeah, the reality. And I, yeah, and you know, and this only gets further exacerbated. I just had a really interesting discussion a couple of days ago um, with someone about rescuing um, dogs from you know supposed meat dogs from Southeast Asia, um, and you know we had a discussion about some of the the racism and a lot of the messaging around that, and you know, I, there's all sorts of really interesting stuff specifically um, about that topic, but as it relates to behavioral euthanasia, it still relates to this utilitarian question of, okay, if it's going to cost you $3,000 to get this dog just to the shelter from, you know, wherever it is um, across the world, even assuming that dog is friendly and well-adjusted, which they almost never are, is that really the best use of $3,000 of donor money? Um, versus helping out, you know, marginal dogs at a shelter a couple counties over. Um, and again, generally, I mean, I have a lot of the toughest cases I've ever worked with have been dogs um, pulled from from other countries, um, you know, whether they were from meat production or claiming to be from meat production to try to convince people to spend money to rescue them or, or they were street dogs or whatever. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a very different calculus. Um, so what else do we have? Um, I think we've talked about, you know, appropriate homes might be nearly impossible to find the shelter environment can compound these behavior issues. Shelters have d limited resources and obviously human, you know, families, homes have limited resources as well. Um, right. it's just a different dynamic. There's not yeah. the average dog owning home doesn't also have a responsibility to a number of other animals, um, you know, a great number of other animals that also need those yeah, resources. They might have a couple so, other. Right, right. Yeah, but they, they might have they, a couple other dogs or cats. It's not usually a situation Yeah, where like if we spend resources on this dog, then other dogs aren't gonna eat or whatever. So, and you know, it, I just realized a note that we made, I think maybe, maybe 
is kind of what you were trying to say earlier about um, where you said you were having trouble articulating uh, a shelter's responsibility versus a owner, owner's responsibility, um, where we put a um, owners might choose to assume the risk. They're essentially deciding if they're going to assume the risk of um, of whatever that animal's particular behavior issue is, where an owner might say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with this risk and the potential fallout. A shelter has to be a lot more cautious about what risk they're assuming by putting an animal into the community. Um, because in addition to just the liability issue, um, and I think you touched on this in, in, uh, in part one, but um, they have to consider how they're making shelter dogs look in general. So if they adopt out Cujo and um, you know, the Cujo's family uh, takes them out into the world and, and Cujo Cujo's, you know, (laughs) and, and people go see these terrible behavior issues or these really difficult behavior issues and go, man, I don't, I'm not going to get a shelter dog. Like they come with all of this baggage and all of this, you know, stress and heartbreak and whatever. Um, and I know we mentioned, you know, in terms of breeds, you know, particular breeds that come with, um, stereotypes and things like that, but shelter dogs really have to be, go out into the world, unfortunately, and be ambassadors for sheltering. And there's already a preconceived notion that shelter dogs have issues, and if that's reinforced um, by people who see shelters adopting out these dogs with issues, then adoptions are going to go down um, and, and breeder purchases are going to go up, which, you know, as I think our listeners know, you and I don't have any problem with responsible breeders, but, uh, you know, that's not always where people end up. A lot of the time they end up with puppy mills or backyard breeders or whatever. So if we are wanting shelter dogs in general to be the default option that people turn to when they're looking for a pet. We have to be putting good pets out into the world. Yeah. So, all right. So I think we've sort of, I know we kind of mixed those up a whole lot, but I believe that we've covered most of it. The bigger points about the difference between considering behavioral euthanasia as a pet owner versus as Um, you know, a shelter or rescue. So um, let's hone in a little more. So for you and I, or, or any behavior consultant from our point of view, I want to talk about um, the ethics of either um, just discussing behavioral euthanasia with clients, if they bring it up or even the idea of recommending it to clients. So is that something that's ethical to do? And if so, when. Um, so, you know, again, we have this sort of collection of factors that we consider, um, that we'll kind of dive into and talk about. And so I guess, you know, the first thing would be, Kayla, do you think it's ethical to recommend behavioral euthanasia to a client? Do you think there's ever a case where that's justified or is that something that is a hundred percent um, just not not uh, not our responsibility or not appropriate for us to do as behavior consultants. What do you think? Uh, I'm never going to say it's never appropriate to recommend it. You know, um, <laughs> it depends, right? Well, it just like everything. Yeah. It depends. I mean, I think in general, there needs to be a very in-depth assessment. Um, you know, you need to feel like you've really 
understood the case, explored a lot of the different avenues in general. But I think there are also cases where the damage that the dog has proved it's willing and able to do is severe enough where it's not unreasonable to um, start making, having these discussions before you spend, you know, six months with a vet behaviorist working through something. So in, you know, let's, let's take, Oh, actually, yeah, th- this is this is a shelter case, but let's say that this was a client. Um, I, um, I've mentioned this dog in the past, but this was a dog that showed up at the shelter who had put dozens of stitches in um, the face and head and back of a toddler. Um, and that dog ended up being euthanized in the shelter. Um, and this dog also showed absolutely zero of... Not, even, not only was this dog not affiliate, affiliative, um, but he was barking, growling, and lunging at everyone, even if all you were doing was walking by and throwing hot dogs and disappearing again. Um, so if that dog had been an initial intake client for me, um, and the supposedly this had happened um, with real, pretty much no trigger. It wasn't, um, this was the dog's first attack and it was relatively early into the relationship between the dog and the child and the child hadn't been doing anything that even remotely could be construed as deserving (laughs) that sort of response from the dog um if that had been an initial intake form from a client i think i would have probably yeah had i would have probably brought up euthanasia as a discussion point because that dog has proved that it is willing and able to do a sustained ongoing very serious attack for relatively little provocation um, and was not showing any affiliative behaviors that made me feel confident in saying like, okay, yeah, we can just get this dog into a home without kids and it'll be fine. Um, So, you know, in those, there are these really extreme cases where, you know, if, or or, where I would say bringing it up is probably um, warranted. And then there are a lot more marginal cases where, I won't bring it up, but I will be thinking about it and I will be thinking about how and if and when I will bring it up with a client. And generally with those marginal cases, at some point my client brings it up on my own and uh, on their own. And then we have the discussion. So that's, that's kind of how I personally handle it. I don't know if there are necessarily any good hard and fast rules for it, but what do you, how's, what's your experience? (laughs) I mean, I would agree. I I definitely would agree. I, I would say, um, in cases in extreme, the scary cases, like the ones that make your hair stand up. When you said, when you described the damage that this dog did to the toddler unprovoked, like my hair stood on end. And I think that while that's not, you know, I don't, (laughs) I don't like to work in vague, (laughs) with vague guidelines like that. But I think we all know when there's a case where the damage is so severe that to imagine putting this dog in any other context where this might happen again is irresponsible. Um, then I think that, you know, we at least as professionals have an, uh, an obligation to discuss it with the client. Um, I've never, and I can't imagine where I would necessarily ever have a situation where I would say like, this is what you have to do because I don't know. I, I know that some vets do that. I know that some vets will tell their clients that, you know, they have to euthanize for behavior. Um, 
it doesn't happen often, but I know that it does happen. Um, I don't know that I would ever feel comfortable saying like, this is what you have to do. But I agree that there are circumstances where I think it is ethical to bring it up and at least prepare the client for considering that and help them understand like what they, what they need to consider in potentially making that decision. Um, I, as I think you probably do too, really like to help clients gather and understand the information that they need to make that, make a decision like that. Um, and, and understand what is involved because no, nobody wants to euthanize their dog for behavior. Like they, nobody does. Um, so when clients bring it up, which they do on their own with me as well, a lot of the time, um, they're, you know, I think a lot of the time they're at their wit's end, they're stressed, they don't see another way, um, or they're, or they're looking for a reason not to. And so I think it's also our job to help them understand if you don't choose to euthanize for behavior, here's what your other options are. And here's what you can expect in, in order to be, to do something else responsibly. And so, you know, it's not my job to tell them like, yeah, you need to euthanize your dog for behavior. It's also not my job to sugarcoat how, what it's going to look like if they choose not to. Um, you know, they need to understand what is going to be involved in keeping that dog and, and the people or animals around it safe if they choose to keep it alive. And so, you know, I feel like that's my role as a consultant is let me give you the information, let me help you understand the information, the prognosis, what's in, what it entails, et cetera, so that you can make the decision that feels right for you. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's, you know, like you said, there's no hard and fast rule. It's, it's not a black and white. It's, it's a very gray area. And I, I can only imagine that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of professionals like doctors or therapists probably find themselves in the same situation where there may be an obvious choice for us, but that doesn't mean that it's our job to make those decisions for people or to tell them what to decide. Um, it's our job to help them make the most informed decision that they possibly can. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think, you know, one of the first things that everyone always is going to think about when you're thinking about, is it ethical to recommend or discuss behavioral euthanasia is whether or not you've kind of reasonably tried quote unquote everything. And as we've said, there might be cases where the risk is so high that we're not going to say, you know, you need to try everything for years or even weeks or months um, because the risk of another event is just so bad. Um, but, you know, in general, you know, I think in most of my cases, it's, you know, okay, we want to get a really good medical workup and make sure that there's not something going wrong medically. I know I've had several cases where, um, you know, there was body handling issues, the dog bit the groomer, or the dog had bitten the child in the home, and then it turns out they had a badly abscessed tooth or a nail that had grown back through the dew claw. Um, or, you know, there's all sorts of different medical things that, um, need to be ruled out, um, whenever possible. Um, then looking at, you know, good management and behavior modification plans. And, you know, as we've discussed, not all training plans are created equal. So really, you know, doing our best to go through with a really well laid out 
positive reinforcement, humane hierarchy based training plan. Um, and that's what so, I was going to you know, say. That I needs think to that, be happening. And then really asking yeah, is the environment. I was just going to say, this is where the humane hierarchy really plays a huge role because if we, you know, it's one thing if we're talking about um, a low stakes situation or behavior, um, you know, you have some wiggle room like, oh, well, we want to teach this dog not to pull on leash. Um, you know, I still want to have a systematic plan, but y- you can you can play around with it. You know, you can troubleshoot, you can try things, you can whatever. Um, when it when the stakes are so high that you have a client who's talking about euthanizing their dog, you need you need a, a roadmap. You need to be able to say like, okay, we've considered this, we've considered this, we've considered this. We've tried all the things that are obvious. We've covered our bases, and and I don't mean that in a CYA way. I mean that in like a we've done every we've done right by the dog and the client. So we can go back and say, we, yes, we have followed this ethical code and we've tried the things that need to be tried and, the, and at the very least, the most obvious things. Um, you know, I agree with you that when it's a really severe case, we don't, I, I don't know that it's the best thing to, to pile the expectation of months of training on the client and continuing to have, you know, the dog or the people at risk. But yeah, have we at least tried um, you know, the, the low hanging fruit, have we at least gone up this hierarchy and ruled out anything that could potentially make a huge difference in this dog's prognosis? Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I generally everything. will have my clients. Yeah. You know, generally I would tell my clients, like, we should be seeing some amount of improvement in the first couple weeks. You know, I'm not expecting you to stick around with this for for months, um, you know, and that doesn't mean it's going to be cured, but right. you know, if is there some we pressure put off? these, yeah, yeah. Can we at least make this feel better and feel a little bit more under control, you know? And if we put in, you know, a really good management plan and start some basic desensitization and counter conditioning and, you know, we're just still, you know, and enrichment and all of this, and we're still seeing really, you know, no improvement in the first couple of weeks, that's a bad sign. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if the dog is tearing through management or, you know, in some cases I was, I just, um, I'm working my way through the aggression in dogs conference. Um, shout out to Michael Shikashio. And he had a good little case study on, you know, what about dogs who have these serious aggression issues paired with separation anxiety where it's like, Oh my gosh, yeah. any sort of management to keep this dog safe. Um, around people is going to trigger the separation anxiety and any attempt to deal with separation anxiety is going to trigger stranger danger. You know, there are these really complicated cases. Um, And I think part of, you know, part of the humane hierarchy as well is recognizing when you need to be getting help as a trainer and there's no shame in, you know, you or I, both of us have admitted freely that separation anxiety is not really our jam. (laughs) Um, right. (laughs) So, you know, in this case of a dog that has serious separation anxiety piled on top of aggression, you know, I think I would be looking for a certified separation anxiety trainer, um, to loop in to help out. You know, we'd also be getting a vet behaviorist on the team to see if we can get meds to help one or both of these issues. Um, Mm -hmm. so recognizing that you as the trainer and the, the human don't have, you know, the owner don't have to go at this alone. And then, you know, part of that when we start talking about a team like that is that's going to be really expensive. Um, So thinking about how we can, 
how we can manage um, the owner's financials as much as possible, because especially vet behaviorists can be hundreds of dollars an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you've got two trainers tacked on top of that, you know, it's just not the sort of thing that most people can afford. Um, And that is not an indictment of them as a dog owner, because no one signs up for a dog expecting to spend $500. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could easily run you $500 an hour. Um, to have a vet behaviorist and a couple trainers um, working mm-hmm. at your dog at the same time. And that's and just at once that, a month. At that price point, a lot of people opt out of medication and therapy for themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like at that yep. price point, a lot of people say like, well, I could get this issue fixed or I could have this medication or whatever for myself, but I can't. I can't afford it. So, yeah, I agree. I think there's no there's no use, there's no benefit to um, judging people for not being willing or able to, to drop that much on behavior therapy um, for an issue that has a really poor prognosis to begin with. So yeah, I completely agree. And I think that, um, you know, that, that ties into the, that resources are limited. So are the resources there? Are they comfortably there? Um, You know, so yeah, uh, have have they tried everything that they reasonably can? You know, when when people say, "Have you tried everything?" We have to define what that means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you know, have you cashed in your four hundred one k to to right. hire a team of experts to maybe you, help your dog? Yeah, you know, that's, did you that's did we drive to Mexico to do ayahuasca with your dog and go on a spirit? No, we didn't do that. Right. So no, we didn't do everything. <laughs> So yeah, everything within reason for that family and that situation. Um, and, and that is subjective, unfortunately. And, and that has to be weighed on a case by case basis, just like all of this, yeah. you know, um, yeah. the next thing that, you know, that we consider, which I think, I feel like these next two things on our list tie very closely into one another, um, is the environment safe or are, do we feel like we're just kind of waiting for the next incident? So, um, I have a colleague with a, um, client whose dog, uh, every couple weeks she hears from the client about, oh no, we had another incident. And I, I feel like I might've mentioned this prior, but, um, there's always like a management failure. There's always, you know, something that went wrong or somebody forgot to do something or somebody turned their back or let their guard down or whatever. And, and I mean, I, I swear every couple of weeks, there's a new bite, um, on this dog's history. And, uh, you know, there are those situations where for whatever reason you, you sort of are just waiting, like it's, everybody knows this is going to happen again. We don't have a handle on this situation. It's going to happen again. Yeah. And I think that that's that history of multiple repeated incidents for whatever reason, you know, there's failure weighs a lot. It weighs yeah, a lot yeah. on the prognosis. Whereas if there's, and the you know, severity just of the one, actual bites, um, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, is the dog repeatedly, you know, putting a cut on your hand as he regrips on a tug toy or is mm-hmm. he giving people stitches as they try to break up a dog fight? Yeah. Um, and I think we might be repeating a lot of what we covered in this first episode in some ways, but, you know, again, these are the factors that I will also discuss with my clients. Um, and you know, the one that I said kind of ties into this is, 
the likelihood of, uh, of not just the likelihood and the severity of the injury, but who's most at risk. So I think this is really important. Um, if I have a client who's got a dog with a behavior issue and they are willing to assume the risk of being bitten or assume the risk of being the target of the aggression, like maybe it's a resource guarding issue that only happens in the home and like they understand they might get bitten. As an adult, you are allowed to assume that risk for yourself. You know, you're allowed to say, I realize my dog might bite me. And, and that's something that I am comfortable living with. But when we start talking about children, strangers, other people's dogs, extended family members, etc., that's when it gets more sticky. Because that's when we're saying, okay, by keeping this dog alive, you're putting these other people at risk who are not consenting to taking on that risk. Is that something that you, you know, do you bring that up with your clients? You, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty yeah. big factor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever said it quite that clearly. Um, but one of the examples I have of, um, and this was, I think I mentioned in our last podcast, I've had, um, several cases where people schedule a call with me basically to do a gut check as they're already leaning towards euthanizing their dog, um, or rehoming their dog. And I, th- I believe that this dog was rehomed. It was a, a couple of years ago now. Um, but these people were summer camp directors. Um, and the dog had bitten, I think two campers at this point, um, both pretty provoked, and relatively minor bites, but it was just a sort of discussion where, you know, it was like, no, you guys aren't crazy to be thinking about rehoming your dog here. I don't think euthanasia needs to be on the table. You know, and I think they actually came to me saying, should we euthanize or rehome? And I said, you know, you guys are in a really extreme environment for a dog who has issues with kids. You literally live at a summer camp. Um, and it's really, really responsible of you guys to say, you know, this is not going to work out. This is, you know, a, a short of them, not just, finding new jobs for both of them, you know, both the parents, um, but also moving, um, there wasn't a reasonable way to move forward with that dog in that home. But given the dog's history of relatively inhibited bites, given the amount of provocation that had been taking place, um, you know, it it was relatively responsible and I was pretty comfortable with them rehoming that dog. Um, The dog hadn't been targeting kids, but there had been Um, and, and, you know, again, when you live at, when you live at a summer camp, just trying, trying to implement the level of management that would be necessary. And if that is what they had come to me asking, you know, can we make this work? I would have said, sure, you know, let's give me a video tour and we'll figure something out, but it would have been a lot. And I'm really glad that they, you know, it's, it's always nice when the clients kind of come to that on their own. Yeah. Um, Well, and I I think that also goes into having a discussion with the clients about the quality of life, not just for the dog, but for them as well. Um, So what, what is the quality of life like now? You know, a dog who is worried enough about children to bite them is a stressed out dog if he's going to be around children all the time. Um, And that's potentially a poor quality of life. Owners who are worried about their dog um, biting their students are stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) And that affects quality of life. And so, you know, where's our quality of life at right now? Where would we like for it to be? Can we reasonably get there? Like, can we reasonably get reasonably get to a point where everyone's quality of life is acceptable? Um, At minimum acceptable and ideally, you know, better. Um, But, you know, and especially when we're talking about rehoming versus behavioral euthanasia, 
is this going to be possible anywhere else for this dog? Or is it, is it, are we just passing the problem on? Are we just, are we rehoming the problem and not, and not changing it or fixing it? And I think that's a really important, and, you know, I know we've talked about this before, but, um, you know, the quality of life for the people is important. It's not nothing, you know, it's, it's, it's not okay, in my opinion, as a consultant to ask someone to suffer a poor quality of life um, in order to keep their dog alive. Um, I, I just yeah. don't. I mean, think the homepage on my website says you deserve to have a nice dog. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> and dogs deserve to get the help that they need too, but not at the expense of someone's mental or physical health. And I think I... I talked about a client that I had who was just suffering from, you know, she, she inherited a dog from a family member and she lived in a condo and it couldn't even, the dog couldn't even leave the apartment, the condo building without just having a a full blown meltdown all all day, every day. And she, she told me she was getting ulcers over it, you know, like she was so stressed and losing sleep and she lost weight. Like over the course of the weeks that I saw her, I noticed she was losing weight. Um, not in a healthy way, not on purpose. Um, and that's not fair. Like that's, that's not okay. Um, for either of them, they were both very miserable. Um, yeah. And so I think that's a discussion that we have to have with our clients too, who are considering either rehoming or behavioral euthanasia is, is what, what does that look like? What does quality of life for everyone look like? And is it attainable? Yeah. Um, and there's a difference between, you know, there, there are certain adjustments in life structure that are reasonable to ask someone to make, I would argue, you know, putting up baby gates to help with potty training. Right. Um, when I first started, um, my, my big international road trip, my, I was keeping a very close eye on Barley's tendencies towards separation anxiety. And if his separation anxiety had been getting worse or was not resolving, I was going to stop, you know, living in a different Airbnb every week with my dog, um, to accommodate him better. (laughs) Um, you know, and that to me feels reasonable to say, okay, yeah. I'm not going to get to go to eight different countries with my dog um, because yeah. of separation anxiety. But, you know, I'm not going to tell a client you have to quit your job so that you can stay home with your dog with separation anxiety. Right. I mean, and, then, um, and there's a point where you can ask it all you want, but like, it's not possible, you know? Like I can ask my clients to do anything. I can say like, well, you really do need to quit your job, but like, can they do that? No. <laughs> Right. I mean, how are they going to pay the vet behaviorist and the three trainers if they don't have a job? Right. Right. So we, you know, we can, I think as, as behavior consultants, sometimes we, we, um, get really greedy about what we want to ask our clients to do on behalf of the dog. When a lot of the time, it's not a matter of them not being willing. They're literally not able to do that. Um, it's not feasible for them to live (laughs) and, uh, and so, yeah, that's definitely a consideration. We ask a lot. Um, yeah, so yeah, we really do. So mm-hmm. do you ever bring this up to your clients or do you let them bring it up? Um, well, kind of like we talked about in the beginning, you know, if, the, if it's dire, and again, I know dire is a really subjective word, but what I, what I tend to do is sort of an internal assessment of all of these factors that we've talked about, you know, um, 
quality of life and management and the history of the behavior and the risk and how severe it is and who's at risk and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of do my own assessment. And if things stack up in a way that the prognosis doesn't look good, I will lay it out as something that may need to be talked about. And so a lot of the time what I'll say is, okay, this is, this is the information you've given me. Here's the situation. Here's what um, it might look like to do a treatment plan. Here's what the management might look like. Um, these risks are still going to be present. And so you have to decide what amount of risk you're willing to take on. If this isn't something that you're willing or able to do, or if the risk feels too high for you, um, you know we may want to talk about the option of behavioral euthanasia. And so I, I, you know, if they haven't brought it up, nobody wants to hear that. But again, I feel like it's our responsibility as professionals to say, this is something that we may come to. Um, Yeah. You know, yeah, I think that's about how I bring it up as well is, and I often, and now that I'm saying about, I'm about to say this out loud, I'm thinking, oh, I should really re-listen to our episode with Dr. Pockle mm-hmm. um, and remind myself to ask clients, hey, if I'm going to say something that's going to be hard for you to hear, how do you want me to say it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because so far, how I tend to do this is as I'm writing out their plan, you know, there's the management, the outline of the training plan, just like you said. And then there is often something in there of, you know, if ABC, we might want to consider rehoming and there's a potential that rehoming may not be an option. If so, then we may need to be considering euthanasia. Um, and I personally prefer to put it out there kind of as one big document where they can take the time to process it before we talk again. Um, but I'm now realizing as I'm saying this out loud that that might not be how all clients would like to have that information delivered. It might feel really impersonal to have it delivered via email. Um, so, you know, I, I'm going to adjust that going forward now that I've said it out loud. Um, <laughs> but that is how I've tended to do it. And, and generally I would say my, I've never knock on wood had a client be shocked that I'm bringing it up. I was just about to say that. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Like, if if it's at the point where I'm going, ugh, this is probably something that at least needs to be um, discussed or brought up. Um, I don't. I can't think of a case I've ever had where the client hadn't already either brought it up or when they heard me say it, they were like, "Yeah, we were thinking about that." Like, it's it's never a shock because if generally if it's that bad, they're already like, Oh my gosh, is this something that we're going to have to do? Or yeah, I agree. Um, if they're, if they're blindsided by it, then there's something missing. There's a piece missing there in terms of their understanding of the situation or my understanding of the situation or their grasp on the severity. Like there's just a, a deficit there in the, in the knowledge or communication for sure. Yeah. And I will say, I think the cases where I've struggled with this the most are not cases where I'm being paid for my time, but cases where I'm talking to a friend or family member about it. Um, I actually have um, a friend from college who adopted a dog that has been showing some really severe 
pretty unprovoked aggression and he recently made the decision to rehome the dog because he felt uncomfortable returning the dog to the breeder based on some things the breeder had said about, you know, her training methods and, and so on. Um, and the contract didn't say that he had to return the dog to the breeder. Um, and I'm not, you know, I've checked in a couple times, but I'm not totally comfortable with his decision to rehome the dog, but I was not as clear and forceful as I may have been had he been paying me for my time and had we been in a more professional relationship versus personal one. Um, but I think, you know, kind of similar to when we were talking about the shelter at some point, uh, I might not be comfortable with the decision that he has made here. Um, but it's also out of my hands and in cases where it's a client and I'm worried about potential liability, then I make it very clear in writing, um, what I'm thinking. Um, I've had a case that I'm working through, currently with um, a dog and a baby, um, a very, very small baby, um, four or five months old at this point. Um, and I've been keeping everything very, very clearly written out in that case. And so far, I'm not concerned about the direction it's going, but it is the sort of thing where, um, you know, and it's not just to cover your ass, although part of it is um, in, in these cases. So, you know, I think that's one of the tough things as behavior consultants is we need to recognize that we can give all the advice we want, but sometimes people are unable to or unwilling to take the steps that we're, we're recommending. And that can go both ways. You know, I've, I've certainly had clients choose to euthanize or rehome when I thought that there were things more that we could have done. Um, and I, I've also had, you know, as I just said, clients who have chosen to, to rehome when I actually think that that might not have been the best choice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, and I think that comes yeah, back around just to only so much we can do. Yeah. It's our job to help them make the best informed decision. It's not our job to make the decision for them. Um, but it's our job to help them make the best informed decision about what each option looks like and what each option entails and whether or not they are equipped to make those choices. Um, you know, so I, I agree. I think that you know, we have to do the best we can in that regard. And, and, and it's kind of out in the world and it's up to them to decide what's best for them and their families. I think it's our jobs to help outline that risk as best we can, you know, for people who may not be viewing it from all sides as much as, as much as we would like, because we are the ones with experience, but, you know, ultimately it's, it's their call. Um, and just uh, approaching those conversations with humility and, grace and patience and and you know doing your best to bring it up in a way that is respectful to the client and to the dog and to the relationship that you guys have it's it's not easy it's you know it sucks but again um if you're finding your clients being shocked by this information then there's a chance that you're missing something and i i don't think it's ever a bad idea to do a gut check um you know, I'm a member of a lot of different Facebook groups for professional dog trainers. Um, and I will often turn to the IABC members forum or the aggression and dogs master course alumni Facebook group, um, and do gut checks, you know, kind of sketch out the details of a case and say, Hey, before I send this email to a client, like does does this feel good to you guys? Or am I missing anything obvious? Um, and that mm -hmm. often helps me before I, before I go forward with that. Yeah. I think one of the difficult things about, um, 
I, I, I want to say crowdsourcing, that's not exactly the right, but just sort of, you know, peer review, I guess, is that um, because this is so subjective, you can usually be prepared to run into a lot of different opinions about um, the decisions that could be made or are being made. And so I would say that's one one thing to be prepared for if you go to a group of peers with, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, my client's thinking about behavioral euthanasia, et cetera. Um, it's tough because we, we aren't in a standardized industry. And so everybody's criteria are going to be so, so very different. So I think that's, you know, something to note. I, I agree. I think, you know, I definitely have my, my group that I go to when I need to bounce ideas or like, am I missing something or am I on the right track here? Am I way off base? Um, it's great to have like, it's great to have, you know, a large group to do that with. It's also really good to have like a trusted group of, of colleagues where, you know, I don't know, I don't necessarily think you need an echo chamber, but where everybody's kind of on the same page and, and talking the same language and using the same, um, units of measurement, so to speak, where, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think you, if you're a member, if you're a professional behavior consultant or dog trainer, and you're listening to this and you're, you probably have a good idea. Like I would imagine like me, you're a member of a lot of different groups. And you probably have a good idea of which ones um, are going to be the most supportive and the most helpful for you for this sort of um, gut check discussion. And you don't have to do that with every single case. Um, And like, it took me a while to figure out which groups I liked for which sorts of conversations Um, because they all have their own different flavors. And that doesn't mean that one group is unhelpful, but you know, I'm certainly not going to turn to a raw feeding group for this discussion um, sure. or even, you know, like I'm a, I'm a member of a couple different like dog training, a meme groups, you know, like we're not going to, you know, it's all dog training professionals, but we're not going to have that discussion there or like dog training marketing groups that I'm part of. Like sure. we're, we're not necessarily going to have that. Talk there. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's really valuable when you find um, peers and colleagues who can challenge you in the right way, you know, who you can find to, um, you know, again, be able to, you know, give constructive criticism or, or ask the right questions or give the right feedback where like, if you really are off track, they can say like, Hey, um, you know, pump pump the brakes or whatever without, without it sort of devolving into a a dog trainer argument. (laughs) Yeah. So well, um, I think it's about time we wrap up. What do you think? I think so. I think we've, I think we've hit this pretty well. You know, there's always going to be more to talk about here, but yeah, we it feels feels like we've treated it with the thoroughness that it deserves. Um, so, if you if we've left anything out, if you have anything to contribute, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, we would love to hear about it. We really thank you guys for joining us on this two-part journey. Um, But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Do you have experience with behavioral euthanasia? Do you have experience speaking to clients about it? Um, What are your thoughts? We invite respectful discussion. Um, As we said Mm -hmm. before, we do ask that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're operating in the best interests of the animals and the people that we're working with. Um, So civil discussion, bring it on. Uh, reach out to us at hello at canineconvos.com or leave a comment wherever you listen. Yeah. 
Um, and one, oh, I was just going to say one more little shout out, which I don't, I think we somehow managed to go this whole way without mentioning is if this is something that you've experienced either as a professional or as the owner of a dog, um, check out the losing Lulu Facebook group. Um, it's yeah. a grief support group for people who have experienced behavioral euthanasia and it's, it's heart wrenching and it's beautiful and it's supportive. And it, I, I, I really highly recommend it if you need, um, if that's something that you would find beneficial, um, check it out. Um, I don't think we've met, mentioned it explicitly so far in this, which is a, an oversight that I wanted to avoid making completely. <laughs> um, so I think now we, um, now we can do our outro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and uh, just to add to that, um, the human half group on Facebook is also really helpful and respectful and supportive. So that's more for, um, consultants or trainers who are grappling with um the, the human half of dog training so based on the the book by Risa van fleet and it's uh great support and advice and help for working through difficult um situations with clients and up to and including um you know discussing the, the things that we've talked about today so awesome lots of resources out there uh, so I'm Ursa Acri. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. Uh, you can find us online at canismajortraining.com. That's just like the constellation. Um, we offer private training and remote training as well as training hikes in the Denver area. And I'm Kayla Fratt. Um, I'm of journeydogtraining.com. You can find us online, um, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, all that good stuff. Um, if you guys want to work with us remotely, um, that's all journeydogtraining.com. Um, I've recently hired a couple new trainers, so there's a very good chance you will not be working with me. I'm totally swamped with work. Um, <laughs> but we also have a variety of online courses, and we just finished transitioning most of them over to Thinkific, so the platform is much better. Um, so if you guys need help with any of the courses, they're all really affordable and um, much better laid out now. So all of that is at journeydogtraining.com. Great. And before we go, be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. And you can contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. That's the word canine all spelled out. We would love to hear from you. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks.